I can do A total eclipse of the heart Hello everyone and welcome to the Stephen King cast One man's musings on the works of Stephen King Each week I'll review one entry in the bibliography of Stephen King In the chronological order of publication And this week I look at the quasi-sequel to the previous year's publication Gerald's Game one that serves as a spiritual companion, a literary sibling that similarly explores the horror of abuse through the perspective of a female protagonist, one that was spotted in the form of a ghostly vision in the pages of Gerald's game itself. A novel in which King not only continues to challenge himself in character work, but also narrative structure. From a pure writing standpoint, Dolores Claiborne is nothing like anything he'd ever written before. Though the plot itself is very simple character examination with a little bit of murder mystery, it's incredibly ambitious. First, it's not just a first-person perspective. The focus is entirely on Dolores Claiborne to the point where hers is the only voice or thought that we hear. This type of technique can be incredibly challenging. Everything that King writes has to be done in such a way where it appears to be a two-way conversation, even though it's really a one-way conversation, or at least a two-way conversation that only ever gives us one side so everything he writes can never come at the expense of the audience who has to understand what's occurring from only one side. It's such a departure from the norm of his writing that some people have speculated that he didn't write it at all, and that Tabitha had been the one to write it. Again, like I said in my Gerald's Game review, I haven't read anything by Tabitha, so I can't say for sure. I will say that there are certainly Stephen Kingisms galore in the novel, and to say that his wife wrote it is both insulting to his talent and complimentary at the same time, in the sense that it says that he captures the female perspective so well it couldn't have been written by a man. Is that true? I don't know. All I know is that it's a deeply personal examination of a woman's life as a wife, mother, and employee. Before I get any further, I'm going to read the world's shortest Wikipedia entry so I'll have a basis upon which I can build my analysis. While being interrogated, Dolores Claiborne wants to make clear to the police that she did not kill her worthy, I'm sorry, her wealthy employer, an elderly woman named Vera Donovan whom she has looked after for years. She does, however, confess to orchestrating the death of her husband, Joe St. George, almost 30 years before, after finding out that he sexually molested their 14-year-old daughter, Selena. Dolores's confession develops into the story of her life, her troubled marriage, and her relationship with her employer. And that's it. That's all that Wikipedia has to say about Dolores Claiborne. Thankfully, I have some stuff to say about Dolores Claiborne. So first, let's, in, in order to get to our analysis, let's just start at the beginning. And here's the opening line that King has that I think just captures this novel so well. Hold on. Hold on, guys. My dog is eating something. I don't know what she's eating or where she got it from. Hey, good corner. Go, go do something. Don't eat things. All right. So going back to, going back to the introductory line. Right, she's just staring at me because she knows I'm going to turn around in one second. She's going to go back to doing something that she's not supposed to do. All right. Okay. Opening line. I'm just an old woman with a foul temper and a fouler mouth. But that's what happens more often than not when you've had a foul life. Great. 
opening and it just encapsulates what this story is going to be and even though she's saying that she's a foul woman or an old woman with a foul temper and a foul mouth you can't help but like the person that says this there's just something so likable and i feel like i know her already it's great i'm just gonna say right now dolores claiborne is one of the greatest characters that king has ever written i love dolores claiborne i think she's a wonderfully strong character with a lot of heart and a lot of a lot of character i mean she's someone that really pops off the page but actually there, here's something i want to talk about that i did not talk about in gerald's game which i should have done the map in both this novel and in gerald's game king provides a map showing the path of the eclipse that connects our two stories together and in this map king clearly points out where the geographic locations of his most famous towns are so if you want an idea of where all the towns fit in in relation to each other geographically just pick up gerald's game or dolores claiborne and just look at the map and it's going to tell you it's great i i'm so surprised i didn't talk about it with um with gerald's game anyway right away we launch into the book and we feel immediately pulled into this world because we are dolores without king having described his main character by which I mean both central character and character from the, the the Northwest, we get a sense, sorry, the Northeast, we get a sense of who Dolores is. The dialect reveals a main accent and suggests a hardworking life, which is exactly who Dolores is. And we get that simply by showing rather than telling. Through the first person perspective, we experience Dolores's conflict. The fact that she's been read her rights and her manner of speaking to the police affirms a bold and tough personality. The great thing is, is that it isn't just first-person perspective, like I said earlier, but it's exclusive to Dolores herself. We are privy to every thought and word that comes out of her mouth, but not what comes out of the mouths with whom she speaks. It's a nice touch. It really separates this from King's other works. It's a very striking experience because it's just... It's just different. It's very experimental from him, yet at the same time plays to his strengths of writing characters. Through this focused perspective, King, or rather I should say Dolores, presents our story. She admits to the murder of her husband, and she denies the murder of an elderly woman whose death implicates Dolores. Furthermore, King, through Dolores, tells the reader exactly how they will be experiencing the story by starting in the middle and working backward and forward. And Dolores just starts talking. Right from the get-go, it's clear that the joy to be had from this book isn't the story, but Dolores herself, who's just a fun character. There's something about an elderly person who stopped caring about what others think about them that's just so much fun to read. And that's Dolores, dropping F-bombs and swearing and generally just being foul-mouthed and ornery. I mean, I'm only a few pages in, and she's already shamelessly confessed to the murder of her husband, tells the cops he deserved it, and manages to scold the cops in the process. If the style of the book and its lack of supernatural turn you off, I get that, but you still need to read it to experience the wonder that is Dolores Claiborne herself. I mean, she is the book. She's not just our point of view character, she's in some ways our only character. An island unto herself, like Little Tall Island itself. King could have named the book Little Tall or The Solar Eclipse, but he didn't. He went with Dolores Claiborne, which was the right choice. And less than 10 pages in, I'm wondering if it's supposed to be, at least in part, a comedy. The fact that Dolores is so bold can't help but put a smile on your face, and it helps grow the legend of this character who reveals that she was in the employ of a woman more foul-tempered than she, 
I mean, at one point, King gives a detailed account of Vera's antagonistic and spiteful bowel movements, all the while crafting an extended metaphor of her bowel movements being a bank with Dolores responsible for the withdrawals and the deposits. It's ridiculous, but never too ridiculous that it takes you out of the story and places us firmly in Dolores's shoes, that we have a better understanding of what it was like to work for Vera all those years. And with the insinuation that the officers in the room with Dolores, as she tells the story, are laughing, shows off both the friendly nature of this small island town, along with reinforcing Dolores's charm, that she's able to do just that while under a police interrogation. Which in of itself is a joke, because clearly Dolores holds all the power here. And then you have the whole business with the dust bunnies. Such an absurd detail that to this day stands as the thing I remember most about this book. It's the one thing that scared Vera the most in life, and her fright of the dust bunnies was so palpable it rubbed off on Dolores as well. The simple fact that a woman who killed her husband unapologetically gets the creeps from dust bunnies is so absurd you can't help but chuckle. Or the irony with the fact that the entire town doesn't care that she killed her husband but is gunning for her with the death of Vera, a death with which she's completely innocent. In Gerald's game, King gave us numerous depictions of Jesse's physical plight. Here, rather than focusing on the physical limitations of a character to heighten conflict, he just focuses on the, the character um, itself. King details Vera's strict rules and codes while also painting us a vivid picture of the hardworking Dolores. So if we, I'm gonna, it's gonna be a, a longer um, read here from from the from the book, and it starts on the top of page 20 from the hardcover edition. Anyone can smell the difference between a sheet that was tumbled in a Maytag and one that was flapped by a good south wind. But there were plenty of winter mornings when it was just 10 degrees and the wind was strong and damp and coming from the east straight off in the Atlantic. On mornings like that, I would have given up that sweet smell without a peep of argument. Hanging sheets in the deep cold is a kind of torture. Nobody knows what it's like unless they've done it, and once you've done it, you never forget it. You take the basket out to the lines and the steam comes rising off the top and the first sheet is warm and maybe you think to yourself if you ain't never done it before that is oh this ain't so bad but by the time you get to the first one up and the edges even and those six pins on it stops steaming it's still wet but now it's cold too and your fingers are wet and they're cold but you go on to the next one and the next and the next and your fingers turn red and they slow up and your shoulders ache, and your mouth is cramped from holding pins in it so your hands are free to keep that befrigged sheet nice and even the whole while, but most of the misery is right there in your fingers. If they go numb, that'd be one thing. You almost wish they would, but they just get red. And if they're there, and if there are enough sheets, they go beyond that to a pale purple color, like the edges of some lilies. By the time you finish, your hands are really just claws. The worst thing, though, is that you know what's going to happen when you finally get back inside with that empty laundry basket and the heat hits your hands. They start to tingle, and they start to throb in the joints. Only it's a feeling so deep, it's really more like crying than throbbing. I wish I could describe it to you so you'd know, Andy, but I can't. Nancy Bannister... There looks like she knows, a little bit anyway, but there's a world of difference between hanging out your wash on the mainland in winter and hanging it out on the island. When your fingers start to warm up again, it feels like there's a hive of bugs in them. So you rub them all over with some kind of hand lotion and wait for the itch to go away. And you know it don't matter how much store lotion or plain old sheep dip you rub into your hands, by the end of February, the skin is still going to be cracked so bad it'll break open and bleed even if you clench a hard fist. And sometimes, even after you've gotten warm again, it may 
maybe even gone to bed, your hands will wake you up in the middle of the night, sobbing with the memory of that pain. You think I'm joking? You can laugh if you want to, but I ain't, not a bit. You can almost hear them, like little children who can't find their mamas. It comes from deep inside, and you lie there and listen to it, knowing all the time that you'll be going back outside again, just the same. Nothing can stop it, and it's all part of a woman's work no man knows about or wants to know about. And while you're going through that, hands numb, fingers purple, shoulders aching, snot leaking off the end of your nose and freezing tight as a tick on your upper lip, she'd more often than not be standing or sitting there in her bedroom window looking out at you. Her forehead be furrowed and her lips drawn down and her hands working on each other all tensed up. She'd be like it was some kind of complicated hospital operation instead of just hanging sheets out to dry in the winter wind. You could see her trying to hold herself back to keep her big trap shut this time, but after a while, she wouldn't be able to know more and she'd throw up the window and lean out so that cold east wind streamed her hair back and she'd howl down six pins remember to use six pins don't you let the wind blow my good sheets down to the corner of the yard mind me now you'd better because i'm watching and i'm counting i think that this passage is a great example of what this book is a recreation of a person's life Told in, at times, unrelated chunks, one tale after another, not necessarily connected or going anywhere, but giving you a perfect picture of our narrator, her lifelong companion, and the life of a small island town off the coast of Maine. There are novels, like the upcoming Insomnia, that show King at his most imaginative. And there are ones like this, when he's at his most introspective, where he's able to slip in beautiful observations about life, like the one on page 25 of the hardcover edition. I have walked through those gloomy rooms sometimes, looking at the furniture swaddled up in dust sheets, and thought of how the place used to look back in the 50s, when they had their summer parties. There was always different colored Japanese lanterns on the lawn, how well I remember that. And I get the funniest chill. In the end of the bright color in the end, the bright colors always go out of life. Have you ever noticed that? In the end, things always look gray, like a dress that's been washed too many times. The first chunk of text is dedicated to getting to know Dolores certainly, but during that time she tells the police and us the three ways that Vera had been a bitch. Her words, not mine. And it's the third reason that humanizes the woman who had, for the last ten-plus pages, flung her own feces around the room just to torment Dolores. Well, the third way she had of being a bitch was the worst. She was a bitch because she was a sad old lady who had nothing to do but die in an upstairs bedroom on an island far from the places and the people she'd known most of her life. That was bad enough, but she was losing her mind while she did it, and there was a part of her that knew that the rest of her was like an undercut riverbank getting ready to slide down into the stream. She was lonely, you see, and that I didn't understand. I never understood why she threw over her whole life to come out to the island in the first place, at least not until yesterday. But she was scared, too, and I could understand that just fine. Even so, she had a horrible, scary kind of strength, like a dying queen that won't let go of her crown even at the end. It's like God himself has to pry it loose a finger at a time. She had her good days and her bad ones, I told you that. 
What I called her fits always happened in between when she was changing from a few days of being bright to a week or two of being fogged in or from a week or two of being fogged in to a time of being bright again. When she was changing, it was like she was nowhere and part of her knew that too. That was the time that she would have her hallucinations. After a scene in which we experience the horror of the dust bunnies, we are treated to a tender moment between Dolores and Vera. Only 51 pages in, King has done enough to present an increasingly complex relationship between these two women, of master and servant, mistrustful but completely trusting of each other, oppositional but codependent at the same time. After King establishes his relationship, um, sorry, this relationship, Dolores travels backward to her relationship with Joe and how it began. At times, King makes the character's work of Joe sort of to be cartoonishly evil. Margaret White was the first one he did with this. She wasn't just religiously motivated, but it was an extreme religion that led to not just a character defect, but the shattering of every aspect of kindness within her. Greg Stilson in The Dead Zone is off of his rocker. The list goes on. And don't get me wrong, I love his character work. But with Joe... He isn't a monster right away. The first glimpse of it comes with his anger directed at Dolores when other men are looking at her. Something about this really creeps me out. Because it's such a specific type of anger and one that I've seen in the real world. It's just awful. Um, we get more details on the abuse of the abuse at the hands of Joe and Dolores' triumph over him. That is a fist-pumpingly badass moment. But any victory she has over him doesn't last long. And King unveils the fact with details of Selena's withdrawing personality, her growing poor complexion, her style of dress that included layering her body with more and more clothes that suggests what winds up being revealed that she is being molested by her father. King paints a wonderful scene with Dolores's words in a moment between mother and daughter on the ferry ride back to the island. We stood there a while, watching the wake spread back towards the mainland. The sun was on the wester by then, beating a track across the water, and the wake broke it up and made it look like pieces of gold. When I was a little girl, my dad used to tell me it was gold, and that sometimes the mermaids came up and got it. He said that they used those broken pieces of late afternoon sunlight as shingles on their magic castles under the sea. When I saw that kind of broken golden track on the water, I always watched it for mermaids. And until I was almost Selena's age, I never doubted that there were such things because my dad had told me there were. The water that day was the deep shade of blue you only seemed to see on calm days in October, and the sound of the diesels was soothing. Selena untied the kerchief she was wearing over her head and raised her arms and laughed. Isn't it beautiful, Mom? She asked me. It is more than just a beautiful description. Note that the description is related to us from Dolores, who is remembering fond times with her father. And it's the mythologizing of sunlight on the water, a little bit of magic in the everyday, the wonder of childhood. This is purposefully juxtaposed against the scene of Dolores and Selena because once more Dolores is on a boat, now a mother rather than a daughter, and whereas her experience on the ferry as a child was one of joy and magic, her ferry ride as a parent brings about harsh realities and ugly truths. This is where Dolores gets the truth of Selena's molestation and the fallout from it. Dolores' threat to Joe, Joe's tampering with the savings account, which hurts, that one hurt to read. King spent the first 100 pages detailing how hard Dolores worked to get that money. And in an instant, it was taken, to her, taken from her by Joe. If we couldn't hate him anymore. 
So this is the straw that breaks the camel's back and during the eclipse, an event which links this novel with the preceding um, Gerald's game, she lures Joe into the Blackberry Patch where he falls into an old well. It's a murder that was first planted as an idea by Vera Donovan herself, which entangles the two women deeper into each other's lives. And with his death comes the end of the novel. But it isn't a necessarily happy ending. His death is long, drawn out, and painful. Not only does Dolores lead him to the well, but he manages to crawl back up from it, which forces her to become even more complicit in the act by shoving him back down. And though she might be able to go about her life from that point forward, it isn't as, as if things become any brighter. I mean, that's not reality. His death doesn't take away the effects of his abuse on Selena. All you have to do is just look at page 250. I think she did pay. That's the worst part. The little island girl who was never out of the state of Maine until she went to Boston for a swim meet when she was 18 has become a smart, successful career woman in New York City. There was an article about her in the New York Times two years ago, did you know that? She writes for all those magazines and still finds times to write me once a week, but they feel like duty letters. Just like the phone calls twice a month who feel like duty calls. I think she calls... Calls in the chatty little notes are the way she pays her heart to be quiet about how she don't ever come back here, about how she's cut her ties with me. Yes, I think she's paid all right. I think she's the one who was the most blameless of all paid the most, and she's still paying. She's 44 years old. She's never married. She's too thin, and I think she drinks. I've heard it in her voice more than once when she calls. I got an idea that might be one of the reasons why she don't come home anymore. She doesn't want me to see her drinking like her father drank, or maybe it's because she's afraid of what she might say if she had one too many while I was right handy, what she might ask. Which brings us to Vera's death, in which the old lady, terrified of the dust bunnies, attempts to flee down the stairs, an act which her body can't take, and falls to her death. King could just leave it alone, but the more ghoulish parts of him want to play with the audience, so he presents us with the ghostly dust bunny of Joe leering at Dolores from underneath the bed. From there on out, it's just a matter of wrapping it all up. We get the full story from Dolores's lips, as if and if she is the reliable narrator she seems to be, then it means that she did not kill Vera Donovan and is rewarded by her for being her friend and companion all these years. As novels go that include murder, molestation, and conspiracy, it's a pretty happy ending. So guys, if you are a Stephen King fan, like I had said earlier, for the horror aspects, for the supernatural, if you are a fan of the, the more famous movies like The Shining or Pet Cemetery, and that's what's drawn you into to King and you've stayed away from Dolores Claiborne, you're really doing yourself a disservice. So when I had, almost a year ago now as I record this, and it'll probably be about a year when this is released, when I sat down and I started thinking about the Stephen King cats, and I sat down to record my first episode, there were certain things that I was kind of hesitant. I mean, there was some strengths that I knew I was going to play into, right? I mean, how everything connects to the Dark Tower series, and I mean, that is kind of was a, one of the driving factors there. But I was kind of worried about you know, revisiting Dolores because it isn't one of his, you know, central novels. It is one of his more famous ones and it isn't one of the ones that are connected to the largest tapestry. And it's not one of the ones that particularly fits in with his underlying theme of building community and, and in when you have a community, you, you can 
rise above any any complications that that come about in your life so it's one that kind of stands out from the rest but standing out from the rest can sometimes be a good thing because this this novel does not feel in many ways like a stephen king novel like i had said before the narrative structure is just so different um but there's certainly familiar qualities of of what you would expect from stephen king in this novel so there's no reason why you shouldn't read it because it's an incredible character piece that really does explore what it must have been like for this particular woman to exist on this little small island, being in a horrible relationship, going to a terrible job, trying her best to be a mother, just trying her best to be a person, and never once complaining about it. That, to me, is what I find great about this book, is that there's so much that we have in our lives today and I still see people complain. You know, I know there's people out there that don't have anything, but just there's people that I know um, that I encounter that, you know, we live very comfortable lives. And Dolores is someone who does not live a comfortable life, and yet she never complains. So the fact that she's able to do her best with what she has and accept it, there's something that I find remarkable about that. So now I'm going to get into the Stephen Kingisms, which is the tricks and traits and tropes of Stephen King, which can be found from one body of work to the next. The first of which is something that I have not talked about that, shame on me for not talking about it, and that is the Bill Russell art. Uh, this is the third novel in a row that has included this particular artist incorporating art to the, the, the front of the book. And we first saw this artist's work with Needful Things. Uh, in which he 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 drew a, a picture of the the town of Needful Things from above, which I think perfectly captured it. And we were treated to other illustrations along the way. I think that his style of art matches perfectly with King's style of writing. And so here again, we have a just a picture of um, what looks to be Dolores's property. So I mean, it, it's. I just wanted to, to point that out because I had failed to point that out in, in previous episodes. And the second Stephen Kingism is being 19. Constant readers will know that this number is very important for King because it was during this age when the world awoke for him and all things were possible. Here, Dolores mentions a time of her life that was like that. Um, it wasn't when she was eight. It wasn't when she was nineteen. It's when she was eighteen. But I feel as though what she's writing about there is what Stephen King felt when he was nineteen. Number three is dependency. Uh, Joe is an alcoholic um, that goes to AA meetings, and that's something that we have seen in many, many Stephen King works. Number four is Rita Hayworth. At one point, Dolores mentions Rita Hayworth, whose name was famously used in the title of Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption. Number four is Sex and Bad Marriages. This is seen here between Joe and Dolores, before in It with Bev and um, Tom Rogan, and later in 11-22-63 between Sadie and her ex-husband. And we have abuse. Now, King has been exploring abuse since his first novel, Carrie. Carrie's abuse comes at the hands of her mother, and the novel established Keevan, Stephen King as a horror icon. Um, it also set the stage for a theme he would explore in a number of his other works throughout the years. First, it's the portrayal from a loved one. 
Um, in that case, Margaret White betraying Carrie through torture and rhetoric. Secondly, the corruption of religion is perverse. Margaret's belief system should inspire her to be a better person and a mother, but it has the adverse effect, and God, a being that should look out for the Carrie Whites of the world, is out to get her in that book. Yes, Carrie is known for the exploration of bullying, but it's also an important statement on abuse. We see abuse next with The Shining, in which Jack Torrance, having physically assaulted his son Danny, becomes possessed and proceeds to try and murder his family. The anger that fuels the abuse and the fear of an abusive family member is more frightening than any ghost. Later in Cujo, a novel entirely about rage, we see abuse rear its ugly head with the character of Joe Camber, whose dog is the personification of the rage that blankets Castle Rock that summer day. And again in the pages of It, one of our seven main characters, Beverly Marsh, is the recipient of a abuse first from her father, physical abuse with the unspoken threat of molestation filling the space between them, and then later the sexual and physical abuse from her husband Tom. And most recently at the point of publication, we see it with Gerald's game, in which Jesse Burlingame suffers molestation at the hands of her father as a child and eventually enters into a less than loveless marriage with a man that ends when the man physically chains her to a bed, a physical action that mirrors the chains she's been shackled with since childhood. And lastly, we have marriages. The Shining was the first time he explored a marriage, but it was never really the focus of the novel. The family unit was, the, was more of the subject of the novel than specifically a marriage. He examined it with a little bit more detail in Pet Cemetery, but really it was with Gerald's game and Dolores Claiborne where he really gets to slow down and take a long, hard look at marriage, and specifically marriage through the eyes of a wife. In both cases, the husbands do not come out looking great. In Gerald's game, Gerald is skewered by Jesse, and rightfully so. He's overweight, he's boring, he takes himself too seriously. The size of his manhood is ridiculed. His insecurities of having been an overweight teen are pushed to the forefront so as to explain his need to control Jesse in that horrible moment. His grin, which he thought was badass, made him look mentally challenged. He's presented as stubborn, as selfish, and at the time of his death, an attempted rapist. It's a very, very personal look at a husband through the eyes of his wife who puts up with the little compromises of a marriage that chip away at her core over the years. And here, in Dolores Claiborne, we examine the complexity of marriage through the eyes of Dolores who puts an end to her abuse that causes conflicting emotions of having enough pride for herself to not put up with this and guilt for the fact that she's doing it for herself, um, what, had, what her mother had never done for herself. And now we have Easter eggs, which are the shout-outs and cameos and connections to other Stephen King works. So the first, of course, is Gerald's game. The two novels are linked thematically, but also through a plot point of the eclipse, which is an interesting function if you look at both of the stories. The first time we see the eclipse is in Gerald's game, which was released before Dolores Claiborne. During the eclipse, young Jesse Burlingame is molested by her father. It starts the beginning of a life haunted by that moment when the sun went out. However, in the pages of Dolores Claiborne, the eclipse functions at the, as the end of the abuse when Dolores kills Joe. In both cases, the eclipse functions as the end. For Jesse, it's the end of all things good, and for Joe, it's the end of his life. It links the two women together, a mother and a daughter. It links the abuser and the abused together, a father and a daughter. It is the beginning for one and the end for another. The second Easter egg is Little Tall Island, the um, ABC TV miniseries The Storm of the Century uh, took place on Little Tall Island, and it's the, same, it's the same location as this novel. Number three, Shawshank Prison. When Rita threatens Joe, she mentions Shawshank. 
Number four, we have the three fates. King references the three fates, the sisters, who weave the strings of life and snip them. We are actually going to see those fates, though they're not sisters in Insomnia. Now, I almost included this in the Stephen King-isms and not the Easter egg section, but I believe that this is an actual reference to events about to occur within a Stephen King book rather than just a pattern within his writing. On page 144 to 145, King writes, Looking at her that way made me think of a story my grandmother used to tell me about the three sisters and the stars who knit our lives, one to spin and one to hold and one to cut off each thread whenever the fancy takes her. I think that is, sorry, that's the last, sorry. I think that last one's name was Atropos. Even if it's not, the name has always given me the shivers. To me, that is a direct reference to the character that will go on to plague Ralph and Lois in Insomnia. Dolores Claiborne was published in 1993, and Insomnia was published in 1994. It wasn't hard to imagine that he was writing the two novels around the same time, so having already begun the tale of Atropos, Clothos, and Lachises, it wasn't hard for him to give the renegade fate a shout-out in the pages of Dolores Claiborne. So guys, that's um, that's all that I've got um, at uh, half an hour. It's a, a shorter episode, and I feel bad because I, I just I it's not as I, I know that it's short, but it I don't want the 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 shortness of this episode to indicate that I didn't like it or I don't have anything to say. Much in the way of Gerald's game, when it's just contained. To one person, there's only so much I can really talk about um, without really getting captured in the minutia. So I, I feel as very similarly here. We have a very intimate, personal look. Not I don't want to say not much. An entire life is happening, but within actual events, there's not much that that that's happening here to talk about. Or maybe I could talk about. It. I don't know. Maybe I dropped the ball. I don't know. But all I know is that this is a really well written novel. Great character work, great, very introspective, very personal look at one person's life um, in one particular setting, and you just you just experience this person's life for, for all of the good and all of the bad. You just experience this person's life, and that's what this book is. So, if you just want a departure, I would go out and and check it out. I mean, you're going to be able to read it in a day or two, depending on your your reading speed. It's not going to take you long. It's comparative to other Stephen King works, the average Stephen King um, novel, uh, this is act. This is pretty short. It's just it's it's 300 pages. It's just a couple pages over 300. That is, I mean, that that's like the the, the act one of Insomnia, which, like I said, I'll be getting to very very soon. All right, guys. So thanks for sticking around. And if you have not done so already, feel free to head on over to uh, iTunes to subscribe to the Stephen King cast and write a review because the more subscriptions and reviews I get, the higher up on the iTunes food chain the, the, the podcast uh, will remain. So any, any help you can give me that way would be greatly appreciated. And... That's about it, guys. So feel free at any time to write into Stephen Kingcast at Yahoo.com, and I will see you here, same King time, same King channel. See you.
Total eclipse of the heart. 